The case. Who are you? Please sit comfortably, whoever you are. I ask you the question, who are you? You ask yourself the question, who am I? The question itself is contingent. It depends on who is asking. The answer, of course, is essential. And this question gets to the heart of the great matter that gathers us all together here now. Okay, so if you're asked, who are you? What will you answer? There are lots of conventional answers. We give our names. Family roles, which may be several. Mother, daughter, wife, sister, son, brother, lover, granddad. The list goes on. Possibilities. These are relational, interconnected, contingent, like the question they're real and important, but we all know that they are only part of the story. That's why we're here. What about our age and appearance? Well, these are always changing, or not. Um, I have a friend who always thinks of herself as as fact, but she has been skinny almost all her adult life and certainly for all the decades I've known her. Yet, some of her reactions and habits continue to be shaped by her misperception of herself as somebody um, who's big. So, you know, um, we may change, but we don't know we're changing or we're not changing, we don't notice. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, views of these aspects of who we think we really are um, can be very subjective, you know, whether, we're, whether we think somebody's pretty or tall or young. Um, you might think that young isn't subjective, but actually it is. I remember um, Irina, a lot of you from the group here will remember Irina, who was a wonderful member of our Zen group in WA. Uh, she was probably in her 70s when I first knew her, which was on, you know, quite a long time ago. And she was, oh, she was a very forceful, wonderful woman. And I remember her telling me when I was 50, oh, you are still so young. And I didn't believe her, but I do now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so occupation, status, that's another thing of who we think we are. This can be a very important aspect of who we think we are and how we see others. Um, who are you often means, how should I treat you? And it is, isn't it easy to jump to wrong conclusions if you don't ask? 
like to tell you a story about um, Michael Halliday, who was the professor of linguistics at Sydney University when I first went there in the 80s. And he was a very, very highly esteemed um, professor of linguistics who had been lured to um, Sydney University from the UK. He had a reputation for being able to speak Chinese so well that Chinese people couldn't tell he wasn't Chinese on the phone. You know, he was highly revered. But he was a small and unassuming man with a small, strong, with a strong Yorkshire accent. And he was very fond of telling a story about being mistaken for a plumber and asked to see to a problem with one of the toilets when he first arrived to take up his post as professor at Sydney University. <laughs> um, I have a feeling he fixed it too, but I may be making that up, but I hope I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, who are you is a question about status in the world, very often. And not only is status an issue in the secular world. Remember the story of the emperor and Bodhidharma in case one of the cliff record. Emperor Wu of Yang asked Bodhidharma about the first principle of the holy teaching, to which Bodhidharma replied, vast emptiness, nothing holy. The emperor said, who is this person confronting me? I, who are you? Dharma said, I don't know. The emperor couldn't figure this out. Remember that rather like Professor Halliday, Bodhidharma's humble appearance did not betray his formidable status. Anyway, Bodhidharma then crossed the river and went on to Wei. And the emperor later took this, up, this matter with his advisor who asked, does your majesty know that person yet? The emperor said, I don't know him. So his advisor told him, that was Bodhisattva Kanon conveying the mind seal of the Buddha. If he'd known that status, he might have acted a bit differently, eh? The emperor felt regretful and at once sought to have a messenger dispatched to urge him to return, but was told there was no use sending a messenger. Even if everyone in the country went after him, he would not return. So here we see the emperor questioning who this man is. He knew that he was a Buddhist monk, but if he was a Buddhist monk, why hadn't he praised him for his lavish donations, his dana? After all, that's the first principle, the first parameter is generosity. And instead said the first principle was vast emptiness, nothing holy. The emperor's confused, who are you? Who is this scruffy foreign monk before me? What is your status? What are your credentials? What allows you to speak to me like this? I don't know. Don't know a mind. A mind free of rigidity and of fixed opinions. Open to the vast and endless possibility embodied in each moment. Another koan that touches on this question is Lin Ji's true man. Lin Ji addressed the assembly and said, there is one person of no rank that is always coming and going from the faces of each of you. If you beginners have not yet proved him, look, look. A 
monk stepped forward and asked, What is the one true man of no rank? Linji descended from the rostrum and seized him. The monk hesitated. Linji pushed him away and said, The true man of no rank, what a kanshiketsu. That's a dried shit stick. Um, Linji addressed the assembly and said, There is one true man of no rank that is always coming and going from the faces of each of you. If you beginners have not yet proved him, look, look. So, who is this one person of no rank? Who really is our self? There are aspects of ourselves that for many of us feel more permanent, more fixed. We get older, we change jobs or our relationship status and we may be losing our attachment to aspects of ourselves as we experience the changing. But some things seem more essentially who we are. Sex, for example male or female, apart from rare cases of androgyny. It's not a matter of choice. But gender is another matter, how we present ourselves as gendered in relation to our biological sex, whether we're cisgender or trans, or anything in between. And that, of course, may change over time. And in quite unpredictable ways. I'm wondering if I've got time to go on the little rat side. I think I will. Um, I was I was talking just just the day before I came here actually I'd gone to the gym and having coffee afterwards found myself talking to a psychotherapist who specialized in um, transgender people and she'd been working with a woman to male transgender person who was a lesbian and so they discussed what was going to happen and this that and the other and she was going to have the hormones and you know and she did and she was in a relationship with another woman because she was a lesbian and then she had the hormone treatment and she didn't like women anymore she liked men she turned from a lesbian into a gay man and Nobody had foreseen this, least of all her, you know. So it's, it's just an interesting example of how something that we think of as very much really who we are um, in the kind of ordinary, everyday sense of who we are can actually change. A little bit like... Um, the story in... the. the um, was it Shariputra? I've, I've forgotten now, I've gone blank on um, who, who the goddess turned him into a woman's body, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely story in the Vimalakirti Sutra of, a, of um, um, one of the Buddha's disciples, um, you know, being changed into a woman's body and thinking, you know, what happened. It was a bit like that. Anyway these stories go on and on. Uh, 
Okay, so we've dealt with that. Now then there are our likes and dislikes. How these shape who we think we are. It's so common in our culture um, that it's something we teach as one of the first things in foreign language classes. I was involved in developing curricula for Aboriginal languages. Um, and some Aboriginal languages don't have a word to talk about, I like this or my favorite. X is Y. Um, there's no way to say it. Does this seem unbelievable to you? Um, it certainly did to the people involved in developing the language curriculum for New South Wales. You know, it's like, in Japanese you can say, my favorite food is sushi and my least favorite food is steak and chips. You know, I mean, you can do it in lots of languages, but it's not a normal thing in some Aboriginal languages. It's not that you can't actually express that concept if you need to, but it's not something that's very much habitual, and so it was really difficult to find a way to do it in some of the languages. And Michael Walsh, who was an expert on languages and was employed as their language expert, was extremely frustrated by the inability of many people to actually get it that some people don't think about the world in the same way and have no way to say it. And I find it quite amazing how much we encourage turning our feelings, and I mean feelings in the sense of greed, like, desire, passion, those, that little constellation, or dislike, aversion, hatred, and indifference and ignorance, the three, greed, hatred, and ignorance that we talk about regularly, how much of those become our opinions and how those define who we are, how what we like or dislike is very, very important in our culture. It's the essence of branding. You know, are you a target or a Zenya person? Um, or even I always buy my clothes from op shops, which is another kind of branding. Telling the world who you are. Not to mention liberal or labor or green. You know, political parties can be a form of branding. And even, to my amazement, aid organizations spend a lot of money working out, you know, their brand image. Who are you, we want to know, not only about individual people, but about, you know, organizations and companies. So this like and dislike, the greed, hatred, and ignorance side of things is very much a part of how we put labels on ourselves and everything else into who we think we are or who we think somebody else is. And these are all the things that distinguish me from you and vice versa the things that separate us. Um, and according to a recent article in The Guardian, um, Justin Trudeau said of Canadians that Canadians by and large are philosophically predisposed to an openness that others find bewildering, even reckless. Um, he told the New York Times magazine that Canada could be the first post-national state, he added, there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada. So 
I found this quite interesting, you know, when I was thinking about who we are, that there's a, a, a nation that's now proud of itself for not having an idea of who it is. Um, and I was, found myself a little bit curious as to how that came about. So I confess I did do a little bit of sort of research on this and was looking at Marshall McLuhan and wondering whether he'd had a hand in it and whether there was any Zen influence here. In fact, um, there wasn't. <laughs> um, the closest I could find was that, you know, there were these things in the zeitgeist at the time in the 70s. And, and um, Marshall McLuhan, you know, he was an important figure in shaping Canadian thought. And though he didn't have much to say about Zen, he did write about robotism in the context of Japanese Zen Buddhism and how it can offer us new ways of thinking about technology. And um, he talked about um, the flexibility of androids, which has a strong affinity with Japanese culture and life. He quoted from Ruth Benedict's The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, an anthropological study of Japanese culture published in 1946, which said, Occidentals cannot easily credit the ability of the Japanese to swing from one behavior to another without psychic cost. Such extreme possibilities are not included in our experience. Yet in Japanese life, the contradictions, as they seem to us, are as deeply based in their view of life as our uniformities are in ours. The ability to live in the present and instantly readjust. So, um, you know, there wasn't much connection to Zen in McLuhan, but um, it was more that the zeitgeist of post-war era in North America, there was an interest in Japan and in Zen and in technology and an intellectual interest in the sort of idea of a less fixed sense of self, which is now in Canada being expressed apparently at a national level. And it's interesting to think about us here now today, especially today, uh, you know, who am I? Am I Australian? What is Australian? Yeah. The way our sense of identity can be and is manipulated politically makes it particularly pertinent now. Um, an understanding of who we really are is the best defense against the forces that want to shape us in particular ways to label those of us who share their views, or skin color, or ethnicity, or religion, or gender, as us, and those who do not, as them, as other. And we know that this labeling and dividing and categorizing and separating is not what we're looking for here. This is not the answer to the question, who am I? even if we don't know what the mysterious answer to our question is. So, what happens when you throw it all away, all the things that you think define you? Not that you must throw away the family relationships or the job or the very cool hat, but just believing that these things define us. And it's more subtle than this too. Um, when you meet a new person, especially someone you may be thinking about developing a long-term relationship with, you want to know who they 
really are. Are they honest? Are they fun? Are they reliable? Are they moody? Are they quick to anger? Do they like dogs? Do they floss? How do they vote? What do they read? Everyone has their own list of questions. Who are you really? Well, I don't know about you, but just like appearance, these things are not as fixed as we sometimes think. Many of the things we take into account are responses, reactions, they're contingent. We may have innate or habitual character traits that tend towards constancy and the same for beliefs and opinions, but we can change our minds. Fortunately, that's why we're here now, to free ourselves from the constraints that we often impose. What is our true nature, our Buddha nature? Something completely our own and yet something we share. The things I've already mentioned from appearance, name, role, nationality, personality and character traits, habits. None of these is who we are. There's a very beautiful poem, which many of you know. Um, it's called Please Call Me By My True Names. That was written by Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Zen teacher, a long time ago. Um, and um, it was a poem that we used to, it was, I think we heard it a lot in the early days of Zen in Australia. Um, it was a time in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I was actually teaching migrants in Sydney at that time, newly arrived migrants. There were people coming from Vietnam, from Laos, from Chile too. People who had lived through the horrors of war um, and um, you know, Zen itself has always flourished in hard times uh, in China, um, through times of terrible persecution. Um, many of you here now won't remember those um, days of the early boat people, um, not the very first boat people, but the sort of early wave of uh, recent boat arrivals in Australia. Um, and it's it's very reminiscent of what's happening now with refugees from Syria and the boat people uh, all over the world, actually, um, escaping from war zones. Um, anyway, this poem had a profound influence on, I mean, I know it really affected my early Zen practice and my search for knowing, you know, for this question, who am I? And so I really wanted to share it with you today, and apologies to those of you who have heard it a thousand times. <laughs> um, and before I read the poem, I'd also like to give you some context by reading what Thich Nhat Hanh himself said about the poem. He said, after the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us in Plum Village. We received hundreds of letters each week from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines. Hundreds each week. It was very painful to read them, but we had to be in contact. We tried our best to help, but the suffering was enormous, and sometimes we were discouraged. It's said that half the boat people fleeing Vietnam died in the ocean, 
only half arrived at the shores of Southeast Asia. There are many young girls, boat people, who were raped by sea pirates. Even though the United Nations and many countries tried to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, sea pirates continue to inflict much suffering on the refugees. One day, we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it's easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I'd been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I would now be the pirate. There is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day. And if we educators, social workers, politicians and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it, there are three people, I would dispute the three people, but listen carefully. The 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is Please Call Me By My True Names, because I have so many names. When I hear one of these names, I have to say yes. And here's the poem. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. I am the bird which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. 
I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. So, this poem illuminates how there is another step to take here. It's not just a matter of working out and understanding intellectually that we might, under different circumstances, have been a pirate or a Trump voter or Trump himself. This goes much deeper, goes right in, free diving to where there are no limits, no barriers. From here, when we are asked, who are you? We call ourselves not by the labels that keep us separate and apart, but by our true names. <laughs>